0: Let's raise this. Let's get this up. Hello and welcome to the Beniverse. My name is Ben Friedman, and today I've been off for quite a while, actually. I haven't been doing podcasts regularly, and I just wanted to explain why that is. First, the biggest thing is that there's, right now during the fall movie season, there's approximately like 10 movies coming out each week that I really want to see and review uh, so that's been making it harder. I just uh, in October I was really busy doing the Halloween series where we did thirteen episodes in, got four weeks, and I was I was already having trouble posting them on time. You know I had a wedding earlier, not my wedding personally, but I had a wedding earlier that I went to in uh, what was it beginning of October. So there was just a lot of like things that just kept compiling on top of each other, and it ultimately led to me just not being able to be on air a lot. And uh, I had to choose and pick my battles, uh, what I wanted to review, uh, what movies I wanted to see, and ultimately I was left with, I think I've seen, oh my god, I want to say like 25 movies in theaters this month, uh, or uh, via streaming as well, that's a lot of movies, I've been seeing a, a lot right now. And I was just left with this thought of like, how am I going to review 30 movies and make it comprehensive for the show while also continuing all my other projects? Listen, if you've been following me, you've seen that I've taken a backseat to my uh, favorite movie from each year. That's continuing really soon. I just, like I said, it was just everything was kind of compiling on, plus some other stuff uh, in life and just my actual just work getting harder. Plus, I've had a lot of articles do. I've just becoming a lot more busier. And it's all, like I said, it's all compiling on. Uh, I can tell you that I have a lot of really big plans for 2023 and goals. Uh, this channel keeps growing in ways that I'm just pretty amazed by. So I thank you for all your support for that. But with that said, today I just I wanted to talk about movies. You want to talk about any one particular specific movie, like I do on Ben and Branson. Uh, see a movie, Ben and Branson, see a movie. I just wanted to talk a bunch, uh, bunch of movies that I've seen recently, uh, a lot of them in Oscar contenders. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about those movies and just get my voice out there. So what what this is working as is it's one of five things. Um, I don't know if it's actually five, but it's working as a law. One, it's my episode for the week. Two, it's also like, 10 reviews just thrown out there so I can clip them out, put them on my channel and have reviews uh, so it's uh, also continuing content for me. Four, this is also kind of working on my Oscar rankings, uh, my power rankings that I've been doing. That's been something that uh, I will be getting back into uh, this month. Here's the reason I took a little bit of a pause on that. A bunch of the movies are coming out this month. So by the end of November, I've seen a majority of the really big contenders. So there's still a few like The Whale, Uh, that I'll have to wait for, or movies that haven't made their way out here, like The Inspection or After Sun. I'll have to wait for some of them. Obviously, Babylon's not coming out till December. But generally, I'm going to see most of the big stuff that is going to be in the awards uh, conversation by the end of November. In fact, I've seen most of them. Uh, This next Thanksgiving week, I don't have a particularly busy schedule on watching movies. It's more of me catching up on movies that I've missed. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, Monday, or, or tomorrow, which is going to be Monday, I will be seeing The Fablemans if all goes right. Uh, That's Spielberg's new movie, so I'm very excited about that. And uh, Wednesday, I'm seeing Glass Onion, the new Knives Out movie, which I'm very excited about that, and the inspection I'll be seeing Thursday. So I have a few of them that I am going to be seeing as this uh, week goes out. And uh, let me correct myself, it's not the inspection I'm actually seeing, Devotion, the new... uh, a plain uh, fighter pilot movie uh, with Glenn Powell and Jonathan Majors, which I've heard is good. I'll be seeing all that uh, this week, but again, it's not a particularly busy schedule for me. Let me grab some water. I do apologize if I drink into the mic. This is the fun of not having a co-host. I just talk a lot. Uh, Also, my voice is very rough. I went to the Kings game earlier today where we've played the uh, Detroit Pistons, and it was a rough game. We were doing very badly uh until the last five minutes of the fourth when we pulled it out and it was a pretty fun game to be at also means my voice voice is very hoarse uh a lot of yelling a lot of yelling at refs who just they're getting worse and worse but i'm not here to talk basketball today let's get into the main focus of this podcast which is just going to be reviewing oscar films these are the films that have had some sort of discussion around them about oscars and whether they are going to get nominated or not, whether these are the films that are, are going to be acclaimed, because we all know it. The narrative is. The narrative is very important for the Oscars. It very much is, what are the films people are talking about? Is there support for these films? And are these films ultimately good? Not always the case for the Oscars. It doesn't always matter if a film is good. Uh, but luckily today, I actually have a lot of films that I really like. Uh, I thought coming into this fall season, I thought this year was weird. I thought there was a lot of movies that really hit for me, and then I had a lot of disappointments and just a lot of two-star movies. Uh, After November, I have a lot of three-and-a-half-slash-four-star movies, so I'm really glad about that. So I'm just going to run down a list of the movies that I saw uh, this month in no particular order. Uh, But I saw Bardo, False Chronicles of a Handful of Truce, which I saw yesterday. I saw Wendell and Wild on Netflix. I think I saw that about a week ago. Causeway, I saw about two weeks ago. My Policeman, I saw about a week ago. Triangle of Sadness, I've been meaning to uh, post that review. I saw it about two weeks ago. Quiet, All Quiet on the Western Front, I saw, I want to say, maybe closer to beginning of November, I think, whenever Veterans Day was, so maybe about two or three weeks now. She said I saw last night. Bones and All I saw it at a screener uh, earlier this week uh, on Wednesday. Uh, the Banshees of is Shearing, I saw, God, I meant to post that review. I think I saw it November 1st. Uh, and I just, I never got around to reviewing it. And I, finally, I saw Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio last night. So I've seen a lot of movies, plus movies that I'm not even talking about. I'll have reviews for movies like Disenchanted and Spirited. Uh, out later this week. That is uh, to say, I've seen a lot of movies, and some of them I've also just been catching up on movies that I've missed earlier this year. I saw Minions: The Rise of Gru, which here's my review. It's not good. It's not very funny. Uh, Steve Carell's the best part. Everything else falls flat. The minions get really annoying about 40 minutes into the movie. I was done. I wanted the movie to end. Uh, that's my review of Minions: The Rise of Gru. But with that all said, I wanted to see a bunch of these movies. Uh, I wanted to save them for the Power Rankings. I wanted to just talk about them in no particular order today. So I just have a bunch of notes on movies that I saw, and we're just going to get into it uh, like that. So we're just going to straight up start talking about my favorite film. So I'm going to be cutting this part of the video out so uh, so I can post them on my YouTube review, so I can have individual reviews of these movies. So if you just want to watch the clips of these, and you don't want to listen to the whole thing, Totally understand, you don't have to. Uh, But yeah, so that's what this show is. I'm going to just be talking movies I've seen and my thoughts on them. So let's start with the one that I saw the most recently, which is the movie She Said which also just real quick note, I'm doing that new feature that the Apple uh, iPhones have where you can sync it with your computer and you can use your iPhone as a web camera. I really like the quality. There's still this issue that it's like just a slight bit laggy. I'm hoping it's going to get fixed out. It hasn't been a huge issue when I've been recording, but if there's just these little delays or pops or whatever in the video, just know that's why. Apple, like I said, I really like this feature. I do notice that it's a little laggy. So I do apologize for that, and I might be working on getting some new uh, setup for this, but for right now, I think the picture quality is the best on my iPhone, and I've been really liking how I look in it, even if I just have to put up with that lag. But with that all said, She Said. So for those who do not know what She Said is, this movie follows the New York Times reporter Megan uh, Tui and uh, Jody Cantor as they launch an investigation into the wrongdoings of Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Uh, famously, Harvey Weinstein has the kind of the catalyst for the Me Too movement. Uh, for those who just don't know who Harvey Weinstein is, I'm going to explain it in the briefest terms I can. He's maybe one of the most famous producers who's worked in film of the past 100 years. Uh, he's kind of instrumental to kickstarting what we call the independent film movement of the 1990s. Now, that's not to give him sole credit, but he does a lot with the company Miramax most famous for bringing us films such as Sex, Lies, and Videotapes, which I believe is, I believe that's Sodenberg's first film. Also brings us films like Pulp Fiction, which is, you know, what really makes Tarantino, Tarantino. He gives us films like Clerks, uh, which brings Kevin Smith into the fold. Scream, *Goodwill Hunting, which really makes Matt Damon and Ben Affleck popular. Lords of the Rings, he produces. Paddington, and a, multiple, a multitude of other films. And he's Very notorious for this uh, sexual harasser. I mean, it's one of those things you hear the cliche of everybody knew. Everybody knew in Hollywood. I wasn't in Hollywood at the time. Uh, I knew. It was so common knowledge. It was the joke of everything. Like, everybody knew this guy was a horrible person and he was a sexual harasser. It was just kind of common knowledge that everyone knew about him, even if you weren't in the town. And that's to say that the only reason this was allowed to happen is because people were covering up or weren't speaking about it because they wanted Harvey Weinstein to. They wanted to be on good terms with him so they could win an Oscar. He was very influential in his Oscar races. He was considered one of the best guys to campaign for you. If you had Harvey Weinstein campaigning for you, you had a good chance of winning an Oscar. Look at all the list of people who have won Oscars with under the Mirror Max label. It's a very impressive label. And Harvey Weinstein campaigned the exact same way he treated women. It was harassment. It was a lot of yelling. It was just a lot of manipulation until he got his way. This was a guy who did not like hearing the word no. And that's kind of what she said starts with. This is a guy in Harvey Weinstein who just is harassing women. And this film this has, film has a little bit of weird things in it. Uh, one of the big things about this movie is it's produced by Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's uh, film company. Uh, Brad Pitt has been in some uh, not-so-fine news recently, just to say the least. I'm not going to comment on it. I'm not saying that I'm particularly well-versed in the whole Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie uh, accusations that have been made. But I'll say it doesn't look particularly good from Brad Pitt's side on the outside. And from my view, that's again not saying that he he is guilty of these. I'm just saying from where I stand, it doesn't look particularly good and it does look at the very least embarrassing and damaging to Brad Pitt. And again, with those accusations being made against Brad Pitt, the fact that this is probably going to get more ugly as the year goes on, it makes this film, it has this weird tinge to it, right? Because you now have another guy who's being accused for sexual harassment. And let's not forget Brad Pitt has worked And had a working relationship with Harvey Weinstein, as it relates to his ex-wives Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie. There's this famous story where he uh, confronts Harvey after he hears what uh, Harvey did to uh, Paltrow. And then also, but then he turned around and worked with uh, Harvey Weinstein in films like *Inglorious Bastards*, uh, which was Tarantino's film after knowing the experience that his wife, Angelina Jolie, went. It's a very complicated and it's a very muddled subject. The reason I'm mentioning it is because this film can be hypocritical, right? This is a film about Hollywood self-congratulating themselves to degree. It's a movie about the fall of a guy that they basically made sure to keep in power. It's a weird thing to deal with because you're now watching a movie about a guy that they benefited from. And now they're like, oh, yeah, how terrible of a person was he? Well, it looks like uh, you guys didn't care enough uh, back like five years ago when he was doing this thing. A lot of people uh, were very complicit in his behavior and accepting of his behavior because he made you money and he made you more famous. It's a difficult thing to uh, reconcile with, especially as it goes in the people who knew and who didn't. And we'll never know that. But we do know that there was a lot of complicity and a lot of male harassers in Hollywood who are kind of just allowed to be. And that's a hard thing to deal with in this movie. It's the hypocrisy, right? Uh, And with that said, the really difficult thing, again, besides the self-congratulatory nature of it, is now, again, you're you're bolstering yourself. This is a film that is up for awards contention. Uh, It looks like there's going to be a lot of nominations to go this way of the film. And it's like, okay... I get it. I get it. It's, but it's also hard to accept, right? It's hard to be like, oh, now this film about the monster that you kind of created and protected, it's now going for the same awards that Weinstein was going after. It's a very muddled subject and I'm not making light of it in any way. And the box office this weekend might've reflected that. Focusing on the movie though, uh, the movie, she said, God, Really running out of breath these days. This is what happens. Maybe I shouldn't record a long podcast after King's game. Let me get some water. Let me swish it around. Cover all 100 taste buds. Um, got it. So, going back to the movie She Said, this movie is directed by Maria Schrader, who's a relatively unknown director, has had some success in the TV world, directing shows like uh, Unorthodox. Definitely not a household name by... Uh, any uh, way or form this being my first exposure to the director i just have to say i was pretty impressed by her direction in this film she's a very subtle director she never goes particularly loud or flashy with the speeches with the characters it's a very toned down movie and it really does a great job at capturing the intimacy in the moments uh, with dignity it really feels like you're trapped in with these characters as they do the investigation and she excels in the uh the tensity of the situation. It always you always have this ever lingering presence of Harvey even though he's not on screen in this film particularly. You just always feel like he's watching over everything. And it makes it so dynamic. And speaking of dynamic, when the characters just most of this film is the characters talking with one another. And I found it riveting. I'll just say it right now. She said it's one of my favorite films of this year. I thought she said it was pretty incredible. It's a uh, features an adapted screenplay by Rebecca Linkowitz, who's a British playwright and screenwriter. And her screenplay is definitely a thing of wonders. As I've already mentioned, the dynamicness of the performances and the way it's staged. It works because it's just, it's not a film that is necessarily uncovering a conspiracy. Think of films like uh, uh, All the President's Men or Spotlight. Those are films of people unlearning, or these are films about people learning a truth about the institution. This one is, they all know it. They all know who Harvey Weinstein is. It's just the challenge of getting people to speak on the record about this conspiracy. It's a much different type of thing. And it's a very different type of investigative journalism. And they do a really good job of explaining that in this film. The difficulties, why they need certain people to be on the record. And in doing it, it does a great job of getting the audience up to speed on what click started the investigation, the precursors, and how that figures out into the whole story. Uh, Without spoiling it, this film does touch on Donald Trump and Bill O'Reilly's accusations made during the 2016 election, and it's a really good precursor and really gets you up to speed on the stakes of this movie. And I think that's going to be a put-off for some audiences, but ultimately it worked really good wonders within this film. And the one thing that I will say about the screenplay, it doesn't hold your hand, It does just expect you to know who Harvey Weinstein is, what Miramax is, and it never gives just a straight-up history lesson into Miramax. It never just says, Oh, Rose McGowan, star of this movie, featuring uh, producing credits from Harvey Weinstein, or Ashley Judd when she worked with uh, Harvey Weinstein in this, or Gwyneth Paltrow, who famously won an Oscar when she uh, starred in Shakespeare in Love, which was produced by Harvey Weinstein and Miramax. It never just says that. So you're left... if you're not in the know, it can be maybe a little confusing when characters uh, that are supposed to be Gwyneth Paltrow are in the film and you're like, uh, so how are they connected with this? So, in that sense, they aren't in the know. But what this film does so well in that is it does get you up to speed in the film very quickly. It is just like, here's Harvey Weinstein, here's what Miramax is doing, here's the harassment they're facing let's go. Let's kickstart the story. And one of my favorite aspects of the screenplay is the use of Harvey Weinstein in the movie. He's not really in this movie. He's ever-present in this movie. A lot of discussions happen about Harvey Weinstein. You can hear his voice at times over the phone, and we see the briefly the back of his head in one scene. But it's not a film about Harvey Weinstein, really. His presence is always there, but it's never like we see this ugly man. We just don't. And that's a really good effect, and it also adds to the intensity of this film. I really like that decision. Uh, this cast is pretty brilliant. I think you're going to see at least one nomination from this cast. Uh, Carrie Mulligan plays uh, Megan. She gets the more juicier of the two roles, the two leading female roles, because she gets to be the character that's tied into the Trump and Bill O'Reilly, So we get to unlearn- so we get to learn a lot about that character in that way she gives a really good performance. I think she's going to get nominated again. It's definitely the more flashier of the two roles. Then we have characters like Zoe Kazan, who uh, also I thought was really great. Now, there there was a weird thing where I almost thought she was miscast in the film. She just appears really young. Kazan's actually 39, but she does look like a character out of her 20s. So that makes me think at times like, oh, this is like, this is her news story she's breaking in. Apparently, she's been around the New York Times for a while. So that's like a, I wouldn't say she's miscast in this film in any means. I think she's actually quite good in this film. It's just that when you read more about the character, you're like, oh, they definitely went younger with this character. And I think it worked, but it is just, regardless to say, she's very good in this film and share emotional sequences of the film. She's really involved with all the emotional sequences and they hit really well. The other actors, they all do really great stuff, even in limited roles, specifically Jennifer L. uh, as Laura Madden and Samantha Morton as Zelda Perkins, who are true of Harvey's victims. They give really powerful performances in very little scenes. They literally each have like one scene where they're just kind of monologuing what Harvey Weinstein did. They're very impactful. They're very tense. They're very scary. They're very uncomfortable. They're very well done. Besides that, everyone else does a very good job in the film despite not having a lot to do. Patricia Clarkson plays Rebecca Colbert, who's one of the New York Times editors. Her role is very much like, okay, but I need you to get this source. I need you to get this person on the record, etc., etc. So shes they're always going back to this character and her job is to just be like, I need this, I need this, I need this. And then it goes off. She doesn't get much to do in the limited time she's in the film, but she's effective in those scenes. Then you have Andre Brouwer, who plays Dean Bakke, Andre's incredible in this movie. Uh, If you don't know who Andre is, he's the actor who plays the chief in the show, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's wonderful in this film. He gets the most fun role in this film where he gets to be the guy who's the editor-in-chief for the New York Times. And he gets to be the guy that gets to talk to Harvey on the phone and tell him to go to hell every time they talk. And he just gets to, he basically gets to just, Annoy Harvey Weinstein every scene. Most of his scenes include him picking up the phone, him making fun of Weinstein, him getting annoyed at Weinstein, and him hanging up the phone and telling him to go to hell. It's absolutely wonderful. He does it like five times in the film, and it's all very great. And then you have other actresses like Ashley Judd in this film, who she plays herself, and it's a very self-referential role, I guess, if you wanted to call it that, in the sense that she's, you know, she's someone who was harassed by Harvey Weinstein, so getting her involved just adds an air of authenticity to the story. And overall, this film really worked for me. I found it quite effective. If you've seen a journalism movie before, you know the tropes that are here in this movie, the feeling of entrapment, the 2 a.m. phone calls, detaching from your family, thinly veiled frets, dead ends, monologues, all that, they're all in this film. But I just found this movie to rise above all that and deliver a really great film and about the women and the survivors who overcame and brought down Weinstein and empowered women to come forward with their stories of sexual harassment and who risked everything against Weinstein. I can highly recommend this movie. This is a pretty clear four out of four stars for me. This is one of my favorite movies of the year. So she said, huge recommendation from me. So that's one review. Uh, already done so that's my review as she said which again was the most recent film that I saw so let's jump over to my next review this is a film that I saw a few weeks ago it was the winner of the Palme d'Amour uh, award at uh, the France uh, festival uh, earlier I think in like May 2022 maybe it was like June or July but uh, regardless it won the Palm the award Uh, It is a film that is directed by Ruben Oslin, who's most famous for his films The Circle and Force Majeure, which if you don't know that style, they're very uh, black comedy in style. It's a film about the rich. It's a film that is a critique of social class in this film. And this film is very much the same. It is the latest film called Triangle of Sadness, which, again, is directed by Ruben Oslin. It is a satirical black comedy about social hierarchy, social media, influencer culture and wealth inequality which took home the Palme d'Or award. It is Auslin's first English language debut. And if I'm not looking at the camera, I do apologize. I have my iPad out here for notes, just so I can remember because I have so many reviews that I just, I needed something to guide me. Triangle of Sadness follows a celebrity model couple named Carl and Yaya who are invited onto a luxury cruise for the rich helmed by a drunk, unhidden socialist boat captain played by Woody Harrelson. It's, very funny premise, and Woody Harrelson really gets to just chew the scenery in this movie in a way that I'll talk about in a second. But here's what I'll say about this movie. I found this film to be a story of two halves. One half, which I found just downright terrible and like almost unbearable, and the second half, which I thought was really engaging and really hit me in uh, just the social satire of the film. Uh, the second half, luckily for the film, happens in the second half of the film in the sense that the best part of the movie is the latter half. So I'm just left with this first hour of the movie. It just takes way too long to click in for me. And I just found myself asking, like, not even what is going on, but like, why do I care about this story? And then we get to the boat, we get to the yacht, and the movie just takes up and picks up in its entirety. The cast is wonderful in this film with uh, the late Charlie Dean, she is absolutely wonderful as the lead role as yaya she really brings a lot of humanity into this role she has this balance of sweetness with cluelessness that comes with wealth where she's just a person who you kind of feel like she means well she just doesn't understand anything she uh and they do it she does it with real great justice Uh, charlie dean's a very uh great talent and so sad that we lost her so young uh, she would have been a pretty big star. It felt like uh, she, like I said, she's great. She gives often laugh out loud funny scenes. Uh, she plays sad really well. She does insecure. It's just a really good performance, and she, like she brings so much depth into this character that could have easily just been a one note pretty uh, Instagram girl model. And she doesn't do that. She brings a lot more to this role. She's really special. As is the whole female cast in this movie. Uh, Vicki Berlin as Paula, the crew manager, is just wonderfully comedic in this film. She's the character that's kind of the most uptight in this film. And then, like, as the film progresses, you kind of just see her unraveling and really just effective, uh, great comedic scenes. And then the sting sailor of this film is actually played by Dolly DeLeon. Uh, sorry, let me repronounce that name. Dolly DeLeon as abigail she's the maid in this film the final hour of this film just becomes a tour de force performance by dolly and she's just incredible in it she steals every scene she's in she's just she's just the peak when the film is at its best with the social satire it's because of her they just let her shine they let her cook for literally an hour in this film and it's pretty wonderful like she is just so killer in this form uh and with that all the performances are really good i've I've, I've been hearing a lot of uh, Woody Harrelson will get a nomination for this film. I would push back on that. Not that he's not really funny in this film. He's very funny in this film as the socialist captain on a boat with a bunch of rich a-holes. It's a really funny premise for him. And he just gets 20 minutes of the film. He kind of does the Radley Cooper role from Licorice Pizza last year, where he kind of gets to come in the film. He just gets to like steal a few scenes, just deliver some of the wildest, craziest stuff you've seen in the movie. Just basically just be Woody Harrelson charisma at a thousand in this movie, and then just doesn't really appear in the rest of the film. It's a pretty wonderful performance, and he's in the most memorable scene in this uh, film, which just won... uh, If you're queasy... Uh, do be warned: there is a scene in this film that involves—it's a twenty-minute puking sequence involving a dinner gone wrong. That's all I will really say about it. Is not for the faint of heart. It's really damn funny, and Woody Harrelson's just killing it in this scene. He's so funny in this scene; it's the best scene in the movie. And then, when the film is at its weakest, I thought is when it's just a blatant uh, commentary on social media. The first hour, in particular, I just found it to be just summarization. Uh, and by summarization, I just mean is like, it's like the old cliche arguments you hear about uh, social media. Oh, look, these people are hot. They're rich people and they have problems. Who really cares? It doesn't feel particularly original in its critiques. Uh, it's not groundbreaking. And I would even dare to say it's not particularly accurate. I just It just gave off the energy of an old man yelling at the clouds. But when the film kicks in, like I said, it takes about an hour to kick in. It's two and a half hours. It's way too long, like just way too long. It should be probably at the very least no more than two hours, but I'd even probably put, I'd cut an hour of this film pretty easily and I think it's more effective. But I, I the second half of the film hits so strong for me that it does save what I found to be a very dull first hour of the film that just didn't work for me in any particular way. And when it, like when the film hits, it's so funny, it's so chaotic, it's so crazy, it's just a great social satire. And I'll call it a great film. It's just the issue is it's paired with a very mediocre half, uh, which means it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I'm giving this film a 2.5 out of 4. The more I see this film, which I think I actually will revisit this film, I might lean more positive because maybe I'll see the benefits of the first hour of this movie. Just the first time I was watching it, I was not vibing. and I was not feeling this first hour. And then, like I said, it really kicks in in a special way. So I can recommend Triangle Sadness overall. I'm giving it 2.5 out of 4 stars. So that's my second review. Uh, Oscar chances, I think you are going to see Dolly DeLeon in this category as Abigail. I think she's kind of a lock in this film. You could argue that I guess it is still a supporting performance because she doesn't really become a main character until like the last hour of the film. But when she becomes the main character, she becomes the main character. She is like the lead actress along with uh, Charlie uh, Dean's character in this film. But in terms of that, I, Dolly's going to get in for this really easily. I don't see Harrelson making it in. The, and this film might get a screenplay nomination. That would kind of be where I'd had my hedge my bets on this film. But let's go over to my next film. Oh, geez. My next film. My next film. This one's... This one's going to be a mess. I saw Bardo: False Chronicles of a Handful of Truths yesterday at Tower Theater. Uh, For those who do not know what this film is, it is directed by Alejandro G. Inarichu. Inarichu is the director who's recently brought us the films like The Revenant and uh, Birdman. Both films, Birdman ends up winning Best Picture in a pretty crazy way. Like, it's kind of weird Birdman won Best Picture that year, especially going up against some of its competition. And The Revenant, of course, famously wins Leonardo DiCaprio his Oscar. So this guy's a pretty well-beloved figure within the Academy. This film stars Daniel uh, gimenez Cocho stars as Silverito. Uh, I probably I mispronounced that name. Sorry, my, my writing's so small. Rio, He is a Mexican journalist turned documentary filmmaker living in LA with his family. His filmography is best described as a docu-fiction with autobiographical elements. Bardo is produced by Netflix and is premiered at Venice, where it uh, was widely mocked. This film was not liked uh, upon reception. It was three hours. It was considered a huge mess, huge disappointment from Iñárritu, and the word that I kept hearing to describe it was self-indulgent. Uh, the film now comes out and it's two hours and 40 minutes. The cut that I saw was two hours and 40 minutes. They cut a little over 20 minutes of the film, uh, which I should just mention it was filmed entirely in Mexico. This film is very much about Mexico, about Mexican history, politics, identity, and culture. There are dreamlike sequences that are frequently throughout the film that recreate Mexican landmark history. If you're someone like me who has studied Mexican history, you might be more familiar more at an advantage of this film to understand some of the more confusing elements at this uh, film. If you're not familiar, there's going to be scenes that you're just completely lost. And here's what I have to say about an Reaches' new film. It's bold. It is pretty groundbreaking it is pretty out there like this is a film that it's pretty amazing that a studio gave him the money to make this because it feels at times therapeutic it feels at times just kind of revolutionary in its filmmaking it feels just brash it's just it's something special you don't see films like this and it talks it tackles a lot of personal subjects including death of the Firstborn absentee fathers, identity, what it means to be an immigrant, the feeling of not having a true home due to your immigration status, the Mexican politics, how Mexico became to be, the American-U.S. relationships, and it's also in Inarichu, in typical Inarichu fashion, commentating about his own filmmaking and style and being apologetic and unabashed about it. There's literally a scene in the film that involves the Inarichu character, uh, which is it's, I should just say uh, the character played by Daniel Gimenez cacho is supposed to be a stand-in for Inarichu in this film. And there are literally scenes where uh, Daniel's character just spouts out dialogues to a critic defending his work. And it, it's very easy to feel like this film is self-indulgent. I wouldn't go as far as to call this film self-indulgent. I will say that it does bite off more than it can chew. The in particular the dreamlike sequences that are heavily used throughout, where he talks with like famous historical figures like Hernan Cortez about in a uh, indigenous genocide, or again the critic character, they feel very muddled. Ultimately, this film's the biggest issue with it is it's just messy. It has way too many ideas going on for its own benefit, and none of them feel particularly fleshed out. And none of them get room to breathe. You're just kind of overwhelmed watching this film in a very bad way. I had a really just rough time following this movie in any meaningful way. And ultimately, the criticism I have of this of this movie, and it's ultimately why this movie is a failure, is it's just messy. The best aspects of the film is the family life in this film. Uh, the family life for the character. And then when we go to the journalist and filmmaker sides, it's very dumbfounding and very... Uh, Certain scenes. I mean, the critic scene goes on for like 10 minutes and it's so self-indulgent. That is like the one time where I will really use the word self-indulgent to uh, critique Inurichu. And then there's other scenes where it again, it's just like, it's so meta, that it's just like, it's too meta. And it doesn't make sense to be this meta. There are scenes that are supposed to be funny, that just don't land. And then there are scenes that are supposed to be dramatic, where people are laughing. It's just the tone is all over the place. Uh, what I will say is it does feel very therapeutic watching it. You are seeing a guy wrestle with his identity. He, this is a guy with all the ideas of his life, and he's he's making a film about himself, about his younger self and how he came to be. And in that sense, it's really interesting to watch Innerichu wrestle with all this. Like I learned a lot about Inorichu as a person in this film. It's just that the film around it just has no clear ideas or anything. Like I just it feels almost like a bunch of snapshots that out of context, don't make sense uh, together. This is There's nothing cohesive holding all of inner retrous therapy in this film. What I will say, though, this film's technically brilliant. I mean, the cinematography is wonderful. The lighting, the direction, the costuming, the score, the, all of it's just so well done. It is a technically impressive film. Like, It is not an easy film to direct, and I give him all the credit for making this film. I can't imagine what the three-hour cut must have felt like, I think that must have just been like way too much. I mean, that's where I could like, when people are calling it self-indulgent, an extra 20 minutes of this film, this film already dragged pretty heavily for me. I can't imagine 20 minutes uh, added to this film makes this film any way better. And it sounds like generally the 20 minute shorter version has been received more popularly uh, by critics and fans. The issue with this film at large parts, is it's so in interested in engaging with the audience, it's almost like it's vignette after vignette that just keeps going on for far too long. Every scene goes on and it drags. There's nothing that the audience really can lean uh, into besides the personal elements of the film, which they're in there, but they're kind of far and few between. When he's exploring himself as a father, I found that part very compelling, especially with the uh, relation with his uh, stillborn son that was really impactful and really emotionally wonderful in this film. Just like that was a true, like I understood what this film was trying to be. And then, like I said, it goes on and it just does 20 other things that you're just like, okay, that was one great vignette almost. And then the five that follow after it just don't particularly work. And I just have to also say, admittedly, this film just isn't for me. Like I, you know, I, my mother, uh, I am the son of a Mexican mother whose parents immigrated to America in the 1960s. You know, my grandparents came here from Mexico to America. I've only been to Mexico twice in my life. I had, despite a majority of my family being in Mexico, I wouldn't claim my roots to be in Mexico. I am an American, true and true. So there are scenes in there that just, you, they're not going to connect with me. I'll say if you have a heritage, if you're wrestling with a lot of the ideas that Inerichu is talking about in this film, this film really might work for you in pretty emotionally profound ways. It's just that this film does require an understanding of the culture and issues that face Mexico. And I think this film will probably play pretty well in Mexico. I think this is going to be a film that you might see it in the best uh, international feature film I just for me the issue that I had for it was I found it to be totally uneven, really unfocused and just straight up at times incomprehensible. Even as I said the thing that this film might be for more international audience who have a more relationship with this film, I just I'm going to struggle seeing an audience sitting through 3 hours of a film that it's just hard to follow just due to a lot of the dream sequences, the fantastical elements of this film. It's not particularly straightforward and that's for its own bad like it's very convoluted it scenes. so while i think maybe some of the thematic value of this film will still hit i just think the screenplay is way too messy for its own good and ultimately that's what brings down the movie despite having a lot of really great technical elements of this film and having really wonderful performances it is just a film that quite literally bites off more than this can chew and i cannot recommend bardo i'm giving it 1.5 out of four stars uh So that was a bit of a disappointment for me. I'm I'm a big fan of Iñárritu. I know some people really can clown on him. I think the guy is a pretty talented filmmaker. I liked The Revenant. I liked Birdman. Uh, Maybe not. they weren't necessarily my favorite films of the year, but I respected them enough. Uh, So to see Bardo just kind of just what everyone was saying about it kind of proved true. I was a little disappointed. I really had high hopes for this movie, and it just didn't work for me in any particular way. But let's move on to my next film which is a film called Causeway, which uh, is directed by uh, Leah uh, Neaber and stars Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Tyree Henry. I'm laughing because I always try to put the pronunciation next to their names, And then for a handful of these in this review, since I was doing so many reviews, so back to back, I forgot to. So I do apologize if I got the director's last name wrong, but I can tell you that I got the two stars' names right. So good on me. Uh, this film follows Lawrence, who plays a woman named Lindsay, a U.S. soldier who suffers a serious brain injury while serving in Afghanistan, which forces her to return home. Upon her arrival, she struggles to return to daily life. And this film is essentially—it's a tour de force performance for Jennifer Lawrence. That's how this film is pitched. It is a tour de force for, I guess, both of these stars, but in particular Jennifer Lawrence. This is the first time we've really gone to see Lawrence in a. True, f- independent, purely dramatic role since Winner's Bone, which I think was like 2009. And here's what I'll say about this film. So, I'll uh, spoiler alert, I didn't particularly like this film. Uh, it's not going to be a particularly positive review for me. What I will say about Causeway is I think Lawrence's performance is very commendable. Uh, ultimately, the issue with it, though, is it just never worked for me. You know, she's supposed to be this character... Lindsay, who's returning home from uh, Afghanistan after suffering a brain injury. And the issue is I just couldn't not see Jennifer Lawrence in it. It really felt like a movie star giving a movie star type performance, even though it's not like a typical, like, even something like Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich. It's not one of those, like, kind of flashy roles. But ultimately, it did feel like a role that was designed to win Jennifer Lawrence acclaim and awards. And it just didn't work for me and that's the issue of this film if like the main central performance of the film doesn't work for me the film to a degree is just it does it's a failure right like i just i found her to completely miscast in this role i never particularly bought this her as this character i just like i said i felt like i was watching the movie star jennifer lawrence go through the cues of winning an oscar if you will say i think that's probably a pretty cynical way of viewing this film. I think there is probably a lot of artistic uh, integrity within Jennifer Lawrence's performance. I just, it didn't click with me in any meaningful way. So I just found this film to just be just, it, it, never it bore, it bored me. Like just straight up. I just like, it was like waiting for like, okay, where are we going with this? I've seen stories like this. Like, what are we trying to do here? What I will say about the film is It's again, she's not necessarily bad in this film. Uh, It just, it does feel like there's something missing from this performance. And I feel like other performers could have brought something interesting. I think also this film might struggle because Jennifer Lawrence is maybe an actress who's better used a little bigger. She's a character like in a movie that I did not like uh, last year, uh, Don't Look Up, which featured Jennifer Lawrence. I thought she was really good in this film because it allows the eccentricities of herself as a performer this film felt like a very stripped down, very naturalistic performance from Lawrence. Which, again, when you have such a fun dynamic performer, having a character that's not particularly eccentric and doesn't get to use some of the more weird or I don't want to say unnatural, but just some of the more Jennifer Lawrence movie star charm, and they don't let her really do that in this movie. It just it didn't. It just didn't feel like a role that she needed to do. And again, I get it. It's a very respectable role for her to do interesting work. I will say the scenes that happened with Brian Tyree Henry in this movie I thought were wonderful. I thought they did actually have really good chemistry. And I they brought out the best in each other as performers. Uh, so that element of the film worked for me. And so this film is not just a void. It's not just a completely, like, nothing film for me. It's just It's just to say that this film doesn't do much for me. It's not very... Flashy, which is completely fine. I don't need this film to be flashy, but it's very subtle and it's a very character-focused drama through and through. And the issue is if I'm not particularly interested in the actress playing the character in a character drama... It's just a film that wasn't going to particularly work for me. This film might be really emotional impactful for other people. If you buy into Jennifer Lawrence's performance, I think that's where the, the line is. If you buy into it, you'll probably like this movie because it's a character study. If you don't buy into the performance, you're probably not going to like this movie because you don't buy into the character study. I ultimately was on the other side. I did not buy into it. Thus, I didn't love this movie. In fact, I it's not a movie I can particularly recommend. I don't think it's a bad film. It's a very short film, which is nice. It's only 90 minutes. It's a very clear, concise, it's a very tight film. In that in that element of it, I respect there's a lot of really good performances. Even like I said, if I don't love Jennifer Lawrence in here, I can't deny that it's a particularly bad performance. It's just what I see to be a miscast performance. Uh, but she has some really emotional moments Uh, with Brian Tyree Henry, and I'll say the last 20 minutes are very impactful emotionally. But ultimately, Causeway is a two out of four star movie for me. It just wasn't a movie for me. It didn't work for me in any particularly cohesive way. And I don't see this film making much buzz at the Academy Awards this year. So that's my review of Causeway. Let me grab some water. I'm really excited about these next two reviews that I have. They are both animated films. Uh, the both stop motion, both from very acclaimed, uh, directors kind of coming back into their own fold and doing something that we wanted to see from them. I'm going to talk about the first one, which is Wendell and Wilde which if you haven't heard this about this film, it's a Netflix film. It is a stop-motion animated horror comedy directed by Henry Selleck and featuring a screenplay written by, get ready for this, Henry Selleck and Jordan Peele. It is produced by Peele and features the vocal performances of Key and Peele, two of my favorite comedian uh, guys ever. I think Key and Peele is so funny. Henry Selleck, if you don't know uh, who he is, he's the guy who directed The Nightmare Before Christmas. He did James and the Giant Peach. He did films uh, such as... Uh, Oh my gosh, Uh, Coraline, they're going to be talking about him on the Blank Check podcast, so I've been going back and re-watching a lot of his movies. I really love his style. I really love the tone, the craftsmanship in this movie, Uh, and all of his movies is very impressive, and that's no difference in this movie. This is a movie that he teamed up with Netflix to make this movie, and it's a movie that is made for me to love, (laughs) the issue is... I didn't love this movie. I'm really sad to say that I found this movie to be a bit of a disappointment. And I just want to get some of the obvious stuff out of the way about this movie. Uh, The animation is beautiful. There is so much craftsmanship in this film. It's pretty astonishing to watch. Like everything just feels so effortful in just a wonderful way. The world feels so alive. It's such a gothic scenery and the sensibilities of it I love. He and Peel are crazy funny in this movie. Just absolutely great. And they are just... This is all a given for this film. This is like, if you had told me that Key and Peele were going to be funny in a Henry Selleck film that was beautiful to look at, that's like, okay, now what else does this film have to offer? And that's the thing. It doesn't have much else to offer, in my opinion. I didn't love the story, and that's my biggest thing. It's very convoluted. And let me just... Explain the story to you real quick. The film follows Kat, a young girl who blames herself for her parents' death. She becomes a juvenile delinquent who is accepted into a Catholic boarding school. Meanwhile, Key and Peele voice Wendell and Wilde, true mischievous demons who dream of making an amusement park for the dead. Eventually, Wendell and Wilde make their way into Kat's dream after being accidentally summoned and make a deal with her uh, that they can bring back Cat's parent if she summons them to Earth. This film features a lot of supernatural rituals, items, uh, zombie councils, just too much world building almost. Like the mythology of this film becomes very confusing and very convoluted very quick. Thus, there is, I found myself lost in this film. I'm just wondering like, wait, what's going on? What happened? Like, where are we? Like, what is this story? And it becomes so more complicated when ultimately the story is about Cat. The story should be about Cat overcoming the loss of her parents and kind of accepting not to blame herself and that is what this film is about ultimately it's just that it has about 10 other ideas within it that really muddle it and it just in that way it just failed for me like this film is very much not a bad film I can recommend this film ultimately just because of the craftsmanship in this film and the brilliance of the the com- the comedic timing in this film and the look at this film but ultimately it's just way too convoluted for its own mess and it's just like you really feel a director coming into his own in the sense that he's being told like no one's telling him no and the issue is he throws every sensibility he's ever had in on screen in this movie and it's just too much It's it's literal overload for this movie and I'm just left sitting here like I really want to like this movie. It has all the things that I want to love about a movie. But ultimately, I'm just not buying into this movie because I'm ultimately more lost than I am like enjoying the movie. And I have to think and I have to be like, so wait, what happened? How does that make sense? Where is it connecting? Who is this person? What's this whole thing with the demons, the summoning? What's this item? What's the importance of this item? Oh, what's this? Who are these characters? It's just so much overload that it never connected to me and ultimately went on that was a big disappointment for me I really wanted to love this film I didn't I have to give it two out of four stars really sad for me I really wanted to like Henry Selick's new film uh but ultimately it looks like I'm just going to be doomed to repeat Coraline which Coraline's an awesome Coraline's an awesome movie I really love Coraline so it's like it's sick that I got that movie to latch onto as well as Nightmare Before Christmas it's the season so I'll be watching both those movies but yeah Wendell and Wilde didn't work for me in any particular meaningful way. So uh, I guess I'm just going to rewatch Coraline for the upteenth time. Uh, so let's talk about the next movie, which is also another animated film. And this one is from a director I've grown to really love the past like five years. This is a director who I don't love his big blockbuster stuff. Wasn't a big fan of Pacific Rim. I think the Hellboy movies are just okay. I, I've always kind of felt that this director was overrated to some degree And then Shape of Water, I really understood it, and I went back. I respect Crimson Peak more. Pan's Labyrinth is pretty brilliant. I really love Nightmare Alley from this year. So ultimately, I was like, okay, you know what? Guillermo del Toro. If anyone was to give me a Pinocchio film, let's see what you got. We had the terrible one from Robert Zemeckis earlier this year. This seems like a character that's just been done over and over again. But I'm like, okay, Guillermo if there's anyone that I'm going to give the chance, it is you sir. please make me a great movie. And this film is directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark uh, Gustafson in his uh, Gustafson in his directorial debut. and they delivered. This movie's wonderful. Uh, Pinocchio, I'm not going to hear you're not going to hear a lot of criticisms from me. Uh, this film stars Ewan McGregor as Sebastian J. Cricket, Gregory Mann as Pinocchio, David Bradley as Geppetto, and features vocal performances from Christoph Waltz in the villain role. Waltz is back and he's killing it as the villain in this movie. Tilda Swinson, Ron Perlman, Finn Wolfhard, and Kate Blanchett. It is a story of Pinocchio. It reimagines Pinocchio based on the 2002 edition by Gris uh, Grimley, which imagines Pinocchio in Italy during World War II. Uh, so Mussolini is in this film Uh, the Gestapo is in this film the film features Geppetto as a father whose son has recently died and one night he crafts Pinocchio who is then brought to life by some spirits and ultimately the film does follow many of the same beats audiences will be familiar with from the Disney version including a very scary whale scene and a carnival sequence uh, Pinocchio trying to go to school and then being kidnapped to the carnival and god this movie's awesome I was really nervous about this movie because, again, we just had that Zemeckis one, which was just bad. And, like, okay, it looks like it's a lot of the same beats as Pinocchio. What is Guillermo del Toro going to do? And it's weird because it actually does a lot of the same things that Zemeckis tries doing. Uh, Zemeckis really did try to make Tom Hanks Geppetto as the father figure of the film and explaining that Pinocchio is kind of a way for him to grieve. It's just that that film talks about it for like two minutes and then it's never talked about in the rest of this film. Geppetto is a very sad character in this film. And, uh, uh, the voice actor Day, uh, David Bradley just, just does a great job of just showing the sorrow of this character and how lost this character is, and him learning to accept Pinocchio and form this kinship with him. It's a very beautiful film in that regard, and the vocal cast is all just incredible. I already said Christoph Waltz is the villain. My God, he gets to chew the scenery in such awesome ways. So does Ron Perlman as the Gustavo. Uh, they're both just wonderful in this film, and I just I really like them. Uh, in this film and god it's again one of the things the art direction of this film is just superb the film fo- feels fully realized kind of like I said with Wendell and Weil everything feels effortful but in a great way it all feels very cohesive it all works together it's Guillermo del Toro just kind of like working in his element I mean this is a fairy tale with very dark natural uh, undertones that haven't always been incorporated within the story this has a story about family and it is it's ultimately the story of a father-son relationship, which I think is even more impactful, and I can definitely see why del Toro was drawn to this after his own father passed away in 2018. I definitely understand why he would want to tell this, and it really is. It's a Guillermo del Toro fairy tale. And it's awesome. Like, I really love this movie. It's just beautiful to look at. It's very emotionally heartfelt. Like, there are some scenes that are really emotionally devastating. It has, like, a scene that I would put, like, similar to that of Up in the first, like, 20 minutes of the scene. Like, you're left heartbroken for this character of Geppetto. And then when Pinocchio comes in, Pinocchio's a lot more aggressively annoying and, like, combative in this film. He's almost like, he feels, like, as they say in the film, a naughty boy. Uh, I did not love saying that, but ultimately, like, it all works, and it just allows this film to feel different from the tonal uh, Disney shift, and in doing that, it just allows it to feel of its own. Now, I will say, like, the issue with this film is the fact that the Disney versions have existed and still exist, and we just had one each year, so, like, the scenes with, like, the whale or the carnival, it's like, I just feel like I just saw that, because he kind of just did, and it's, an unfair critique to put on this film. In fact, I wouldn't even call it a critique. It's just poor timing. It's just an unfortunate circumstance. But it is like it is in my mind where I'm like watching the carnival scene done much better in this film than it was in Zemeckis, and I'm ultimately like, oh, okay, this is. I just saw this in Zemeckis' version, and true, this is much better, but it feels so familiar. So that's a little bit of a struggle that I think most audiences will probably have with this film. But ultimately, I really love this film. It's a really beautiful film to look at. It might be like a smidge too long, but I wouldn't even go that. You know, if you've heard my reviews, you know I get really bothered when a movie's over a hundred minutes. But ultimately, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, huge recommendation. Check this one out. I'm giving it, I'm going to say 3.5 out of 4 stars uh, for Pinocchio, for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Uh, The review may jump up, honestly, in the future, because this is a film that I'll be rewatching, and I think it's impact is going to be undeniable. I think the best animated feature just got locked up. I think Pinocchio is going to win it all, and it might even make it into the best picture category. I really like this film. It's one of Guillermo del Toro's best, and it's Guillermo del Toro working in a setting that he knows to do masterfully, and check it out. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio will be coming out to Netflix, and if you can see it in theaters, see it in theaters. It's very well worth the experience. So that's my review of that movie. So we have a few more left. It looks like I might have four more uh, reviews left, maybe five. Let's talk about the film that I meant to review a while ago. This film came out, I want to say, right before Veterans Weekend. Uh, It is a film directed by Edward Berger, uh, which is the film All Quiet on the Western Front, which is described as a German epic anti-war film based on the 1929 novel of the same name. It is set in the closing days of World War I, and the film follows the life of a German soldier named Paul Baumer, who ends up enlisting with his friends and finds himself exposed to the realities of war and shattering his hopes of becoming a hero. This is an anti war film. Anyone who watches this thing, film and thinks it glorifies war in any way just isn't able to comprehend or engage with the text in any meaningful way. Uh, this film is pretty spectacular. Uh, it's a film that is currently available to stream on Netflix, and it's a damn good movie all around. It is largely due to the technical nature of this film, like this film is pretty technically impressive, and it's visually very impressive. But yet, unlike other recent war films like Dunkirk or 1970, which I said the same thing, it's a very visual impressive, but I just didn't like the film. This one fixes that, and I was pretty invested in the devastating emotional core at its center for all quiet on the western front Uh, that is to say that i felt for these characters when they're going on this journey as they're going through world war one i felt for them when characters die i felt their deaths it was a film that really worked for me in that way uh and in this film felix kramer plays paul uh bomber and he's excellent as the role as the hopeful young youth who learns the horrors of war He's one of these characters that has to have his uh, eyes, he has, to, he has to learn to have them wide open, like it's his exposure to the nastiness of war, and the cruelty and the unforgiving nature of war, and in that way, like he is that character that just has to like lose all innocence in this film, and he does that so in superb ways, but I think the standout performance in this film is Albrecht uh, Schweich, who is, <laughs> pronounced that name so bad, Albrecht Schwach is probably my favorite performer in this film again the favorite performer i can't even say his name correctly uh if i uh when i talk about him next time i'll make sure to actually learn the pronunciation of his name but he plays uh the character uh kat uh kaninsky who's a bomber's friend and his kind of his pseudo mentor he's the one who kind of takes uh uh, the character of uh, Paul under his wing and teaches him basically the realities of war. He's really good in this. He is just everything with this character is pretty impactful in the most like devastating ways and scenes like there is a lot with this character that you're just sold in and if you if you've read the story of All Quiet on the Western Front or really just know World War One history and the trench warfare, you know it's ugly, and you know that this film is going to be disgusting and hard to look at and boy is it uh the war scenes are visceral and horrifying the movie feels disgusting and lived in in the worst possible way like you just feel dirty while watching the mud of the movie especially when they're going through the mud when they're all getting like you know when they're getting the water in the boots and you hear their boots squishing with water and you're just like oh it's trench foot and just, like, the bullets flying, people's heads exploding, grenades, like, impaling, then you have the barbed wire, and just the rats everywhere, this movie is visceral, and it's so intense, and the thing about this film is, if Saving Private Ryan is the film about, uh, if Saving Private Ryan is that, like, the D-Day sequence where they're all storming, that's what All Quiet on the Western Front is for two and a half hours, it never really lets up in and anyway it, it's really hard to watch it's uh it is kind of like the d day sequence for two and a half hours and for a lot of audiences that's probably too much and it really to me it really drove point the film the point of the film which is the meaningless and cruelty of the war and just it just it blows it up in just brutal fashion And the No Man Land sequence is just incredible. Like there's a few scenes that involve No Man's Land. There's one in the middle that particularly involves a tank, and it's some of the best technological design you'll see this year and the best use of sound that you might see this year. It is so scary. It is like maybe one of the scariest films you'll see in that like 20 minute sequence. And the the film that like the part that really ties it and the emotion that i talk about in this film is actually largely found in daniel brawl's character uh this is a character that for the beginning of the film you're kind of lost like what exactly is going on but you need this character to get to the resolution that that character in this story gets to for the film to be as impactful as it is and you know where it's going like that's what i'll say this film isn't particularly original like You should guess where the film's going pretty easily. But it just works so well. And it's just so impactful. And the Tank sequence, like I said, holy crap. I have to highly recommend this film. This is a really impressive achievement. I can't say I want to go back and rewatch this film. But it's nonetheless really impressive. I got to give All Quiet on the Western Front four out of four stars. Uh, Yeah, really impressive movie all around. You'll see it in the award contention, especially in the below the line probably international feature, and maybe it could even sneak in for uh, best adapted screenplay and uh, best picture. We will see, but highly recommend All Quiet on the Western Front. It is available to stream on Netflix. Do it so. And let's talk about the next film. I, you know what? I'm going to change the order. I have the order for this. I have three more films. I'm going to talk about a film that, uh, because the last two films that I want to talk about, they're probably my two favorite films that I've watched. Uh, in November, or if they're not my two favorites, they're definitely up there. Uh, so I'm going to talk about a film that I didn't uh, love as much as I loved the other two films, and that is the film My Policeman. Uh, Harry Styles stands, come at me. Uh, this film is directed by Michael Granage, and the film follows policeman Tom as he begins an affair with the museum-curated Patrick, played wonderfully by David Dawson, and all behind the back of uh, Patrick's wife, uh, Maureen, in 1950s Britain. Marion, sorry, Marion is played by Emma Corrin, and the film features three really strong performances all around, uh, with Dawson being the clear best. Styles impressed me. I think a lot of people enjoy to hate on Styles as an actor, uh, especially because Don't Worry, Darling really asked way too much of him. But he's really—I thought he was effective in this movie. I wouldn't say I think Dawson's pretty like the clear one A in this film, but Styles holds his own. He has a really good emotional arc with this character. I think the performance all the round works really well. I thought the romantic. I think here's the thing with uh, Styles right now. He's really good at being charismatic. He's really good at being sexy on screen. And he's really good at being romantic. When the film asks him to maybe do stuff like anger and just like show the range, I think that's where Styles, maybe his performance really falls apart. Not as much as in this film. Don't worry, darling just ask way too much of him as an actor. This film doesn't ask a lot of him in the, as an actor, and I think it works. And I think if he builds himself with this type of movie and builds his acting chops with this, I think he actually can develop into something of a really interesting actor. Again, I liked him in this movie enough. Uh, and then uh, the actress who plays uh, Marion, uh, Emma Corrin, I thought was good, uh, though her character is very much reduced to the woesome wife uh, role. The issue that I had with my policeman is this film's about twenty years too late. It is a gay romance uh, that feels doesn't feel impactful. It's like oh, this film could have came out in like nineteen ninety two, uh, right around the time of Philadelphia, and it's like oh, that would have been impactful. Now it's just like we've got uh, films like this, and this film's not particularly original. Like it feels like it's supposed to be like profound, like it's the first type of film like that. It's not really, and that kind of works at the detriment of this film. It is a film that just, I feel like the screenplay is very cliche and painfully dull. You know exactly where the film's going. You know every beat that the film's going to hit. When revelations happen within the film, I'm like, oh, well, obviously that's what was going to happen. But why the film works in a lot of scenes is because Dawson and Sauce have really natural chemistry. And their relationship feels very real. And when the emotional impact of their scenes hit they actually hit in a very beautiful way. Uh, The film that I would compare this most or this type of film is it's a Nicholas Sparks film. And in this case, I think uh, My Policeman would be an above average Nicholas Sparks film. I wouldn't call this anywhere near to the best film of this year uh, because it's not, and the screenplay is a mess. But I would, if you're putting it in this genre of like romantic Nicholas Sparks, very emotional, very like, almost, like, emotionally manipulative in scenes. Like, I think this film works in that genre. So, as an Academy, as Oscar voting film, this film's not going to make any impact. As a film that just exists as a... If you like this type of romantic film, if you like films like The Notebook or The Last Song or any of those types of films, this is probably an above average to good example of what this genre can offer. If you're, like, trying to see this, like, really... If you're basically looking for, like, call me by your name profoundity, you're not going to find it in this film. If you're looking for average romantic film, you'll find it in this. I have to give a two out of four stars. Wasn't particularly impressed, but the performances prefer... Uh, wasn't particularly impressed, but the performances impressed me overall. And I think uh, Styles has a chance as an actor. If this is the type of role he picks, if he can learn from this, I think there is a chance to see him as a big actor. Let's talk about my last two favorite films uh, that I teased. Uh, if you remember my list, you might know that there's two films that I haven't talked about. So let's just talk about, let's talk about the one that I have less thoughts on, even though I actually preferred this film over the next film that I'm talking about. And this film is the film Bones and All, which stars Taylor Russell, Timothy Chalamet, and is directed by Luca Guadagnino. Uh, Luca Guadagnino recently directed the horror remake in 2019 of Suspirio and he directed the 2017 sensation Call Me By Your Name, starring uh, Timothy Chalamet and Armie Hammer, which, interestingly enough, about Armie Hammer, this film is about a cannibal. Uh, This movie is... uh, This movie, Bones and All, follows two young cannibal lovers who flee together and take a road trip across 1980s Reagan America. The film is best described as a coming-of-age romantic film, and is based on the novel of the same name by Camille Dillet, De uh, this film stars Taylor Russell as Marin and Timothy Chalamet as Lee. And th- that description of the film is very accurate. This film is about two young cannibal lovers who flee together and take a road trip across 1980s Reagan America. The- that's, the- that's the pitch of the movie. If you're out, if there is no chance of you thinking that premise is good, if you're like, that sounds horrible and there's nothing that this film can do to impress me, and I'm just kind of offended by this, and I just think it's disgusting, and you're just like, you're bringing to light cannibals, this film's not going to work for you. Just don't go see this film. If you're not, if you're someone like me, who can just accept the film and meet it where it is, just accept the morality that this film is going to hit, I, there, this is a really beautiful film. Uh, this film is quite literally metaphorical and quite literal at the same times. It's metaphorical about the ideas of lust, desire, a desire to fit in and find community, a hungering desire to find identity, and then it's literally quite literal. And it's a film about people eating other people alive, and kind of getting off to it. Uh, this film is about people who eat other people. It's gory. It happens on screen. In really brutal, upsetting, and unpleasant ways, it's very hard to stomach. Uh, one of the people that I saw the movie with—not uh, that I saw the movie with, but who was in my screening—they got sick. <laughs> like they uh, quite literally—they uh, threw up all over themselves. It was pretty nasty. Uh, I don't—I think they actually got to run out and throw up in the trash can, but it was—it was still pretty nasty. It's upsetting. Like this film is not easy to watch. It is, if you are if the idea of watching another person eat another person, even fake like on camera is upsetting to you and just like you just, you can't stomach it. You're not going to last in this movie because that happens. I will say that I thought it was pretty handled with artistic integrity. It didn't feel overly gory. It didn't feel exploitative. It just felt like how the story needed to tell that scene in particularly. And what works so well about this movie is Taylor Russell in particular. Uh, As Marin, she's a fully realized protagonist. She does not want to live this type of life. Like, you feel for this character because it's not like this character is just someone who kills people and eats them. This is a person who doesn't want this. She feels burdened. Like, she doesn't want this life. She wants to be a normal human being. She does not want to have this desire of flesh. And in that way, it's just this film allows us to enter into her life. And it does so without judgment. It allows us to just be with this character and emphasize and care for this character and kind of fall in love with this character in many ways. And then paired with Timothy Chalamet, their romantic relationship feels real. Like you feel the genuine bond in this film. You feel the moments of tenderness and uh, just love and just caringness of these two characters. Like they are true young romantic lovers uh, in this film. And it, in that way it is just a beautiful film about self-identity young love and desire and it works so well Taylor Russell is such an interesting screen present like every scene you can't take her eyes like her eyes off her she's so beautiful she's so natural in her performance you have so much heart and care for this character paired with Timothy Chalamet they have great chemistry together just every bit of emotion that this actress is trying to convey I think it hits pretty incredible And there's been a lot of talk about this movie, specifically the idea that it's set in 1980s America. Here's what I'll say about that I think it works really well because it does get the dichotomy of Reagan's ideal of American versus the cannibals. Like, it's just, it's such a stark contrast that it really works to just kind of show, like, how these two characters kind of feel lost. Like they don't feel like they belong in this world. And again, this is not a film that condones cannibalism. It ultimately is. Cannibalism is bad. It just, it allows these characters to exist. And it's just like, okay, this is who these characters are. And we're not going to talk about it anymore. It's not like there's ever a scene where it's like, well, eating people is bad. And you like get this whole educational thing of like the damage that it does. These characters know the damage. They've lived this life and they know the struggles that come with this life. And that's where the emotional impact comes because you feel the devastation of the acts that they do. This, these are not two completely evil characters. In fact, I wouldn't even call them evil. They're very complicated. They have something horrible in uh, the fact that they eat people, they are ultimately murderers, but they're sympathetic. They're, there's something real about these characters. You just, you feel for these characters. It, I heard some people describe it as natural-born killers. I would call it maybe a little less than that, because I do think the point of natural-born killers is they are psychotic. These are people kind of stricken with something that they don't know how to deal with. And it's the damages of that, and it's the repercussions of this type of lifestyle. And in setting it in the 1980s, I also, I don't think this film would fundamentally work if it was set in 2022. This film does involve them killing people in like random stops and eating them. Like in 2022, you just have that on camera or you just capture these people so much quicker. The fact that they can kind of just leave from town to town and jump back, just it allows for it to feel more real, essentially. Like I said, in 2022, you'd probably argue that this film feels ridiculous. And like I said, I I think what works about this film so well is this film never asks you to get on board with cannibalism. It doesn't sensationalize the acts either, although at times it can make it seem very sexual, uh, especially in its finale. And it's very passionate. It's very passionate, very beautiful filmmaking. And it's just, it's the type of risk that Hollywood is kind of not interested in taking it anymore. And I'm glad Guadagnino can do this type of film. I think it is a really interesting film. I think it's a very upsetting film. I think it's a very beautiful film. And I have to highly recommend Bones and All. It's one of my favorite films of the year. Mark Rylance comes in this film as the antagonist of this film. Wonderful. Deeply upsetting character. Deeply upsetting performance. Cannot recommend uh, him as enough. I, I really hope he gets consideration for best supporting actor, even though I don't think that's uh, realistic, this film is going to be too weird for most mainstream audiences. If I describe this film and you're like, I am out," this sounds horrible, you're probably not going to like this film. If you like uh, Call Me By Your Name, if you like Suspiria, if you like this, if you can get on board for this type of idea, I think you're going to be pretty blown away by this movie. And ultimately, it's a huge recommendation for out of four stars for Bones and all, which uh, ended up being maybe top three favorite movies of this year that I've seen so far. I was really charmed by it, and it left me pretty emotionally devastated. Uh, as a film like this, you would just kind of expect it to. And the last film that I want to review before I uh, let you all go before I stop holding you hostage is a film called Banshee of the and I do just want to let it know I switched over to paper notes because I saw Banshees November 1st, Uh, So, I'm going to have to refer to my notes that I wrote about it the day after much more because, I mean, I I remember the big beats of this film. I remember a lot of the things I just want to remember what I really wanted to talk about in this film. So, I will be at times just close up reading this. So, I do apologize for that. But the Banshees of Inishirin. The Banshees of Inishirin is set during the Irish Civil War on a remote island and the Banshees of Inishirin follows Padraig and Combe, lifelong friends who find themselves in a predicament when Combe and the uh, unexpectedly ends their friendship. In trying to fix the relationship, Podrick, played by Colin Farrell, finds his efforts only alienate Colm played by Brendan Gleeson, further escalating in a shocking ultimatum. This film is uh, stars Colin Farrell and is directed and written by uh, Martin McDonough. This film also stars Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, and Barry Keoghan. This is Martin McDonough's fourth feature film following In Bruges' Seven Psychopaths and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This is his third collaboration with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson with all the actors we are knighting after starring together in In Bruges and after taking a detour to America with Seven Psychopaths and uh, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. He's back in Ireland. He's back in his homeland and he makes a film that is very much his style, very much, I think, Throwback to the humor, darkness, and sadness of in Bruges. So he returns to Europe. And much like his previous films, uh, Banshees of Inisherin features McDonough's signature dark comedy, theatric influence, and violence. And the film premiered at the Venice Film Festival and won Farrell Best Actor and McDonough the Best Screenplay. Since its premiere, it has been projected to be a major award frontrunner in next year's Academy Awards season. Uh is it's going to be a big one. I honestly, uh, for best actor, it really does feel like it's down to a two-lead race between Colin Farrell and Brendan Fraser, maybe with Austin Butler coming in there, but I really do think it's uh Farrell versus uh Frazier. I think they're both gonna be first-time nominees, and one of them's gonna be a first-time winner. Going into this film, I had heard so much positivity surrounding this film that I was just a little dubious. Was not a fan of uh, McDonough's previous film, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which I liked in scenes. And I just, overall, I just, that message of the film, the nature of it, it just never clicked with me in any meaningful way. Having seen the film, uh, Banshees of Inishirin, now uh, a few weeks ago, I can say this movie has stuck with me pretty powerfully. I was uh, pretty blown away by this film. I found it to be quite wonderful, actually. It's One of the funniest films of the year. It is chock full of belly laughs in it. It features really uh, beautiful cinematography. It's very violent and pure insanity throughout. And in all the most wonderful ways, it offers great performances. And it offers an insightful look into friendship, aging, and the legacy we leave behind. Uh, This direction from McDonough is pretty immaculate. The island is intimate yet invasive. Like Everyone knows your business. It's one of those feelings where you're just in it and it's just like, Oh, that guy who lives across the street, he knows my whole life story. How can I escape that? And it just, these tight interiors, because like, you know, this is a very small island. These houses and the bar, like all the places they're at, they're very small. And it kind of gives this feeling, it draws forth this feeling of suffocating And in doing so, it allows us to emphasize with Gleason's turmoil in this film. Ultimately, this is a guy who's lived his whole life on the island and just kind of sees it as a waste, and he just feels trapped. And ultimately, we feel trapped with him in this film. And it's ultimately a story where the character's existence is futile. And for Gleason, if his existence is futile and his legacy is forgotten, then what point was there to his life? where uh, the character that Colin Farrell plays is kind of the exact opposite. He's like, I lived a happy life. I had people that loved me, and I loved other people. That is enough to give forth a meaningful, significant life. And it's this dichotomy that the two face, this conflict between the two and their worldviews. It arises from their perspective on this issue. Colm himself, uh, again, Gleason's character, being a musician, sees his music as his legacy, Uh, his art, where Podrick finds it in his belief of others and family. And that kindness ultimately is what we are remembered for. Uh, And as this film becomes more, and we kind of see these characters almost kind of shift, like not fully shift, but we see Gleason kind of lean more to Farrell by the end, and Farrell lean a lot more towards Gleason's worldview at points. And of course, with this film being set in the Irish Civil War, which... This film is set in 1923. It is a reflection of these two friends' conflict, which is supposed to be something larger to speak about the Irish Civil War. It's very much a backdrop, and I think it's supposed to be there to further kind of explain what this relationship is and what larger metaphors this film is trying to say. And it's the idea that just one day, friends and neighbors just all of a sudden are at war with each other without rhyme or reason and just begin fighting for no apparent reason. And while the film is, like I said, it's not a film about war. It just, it offers an explanation for just how one day we can wake up and just just stop, like just stop with our lives and kind of just like all of a sudden just hate each other. It's it's so weird. And that's kind of what war is, like especially a civil war. It's just like, oh yeah, that person who I consider a friend now just because they're on a different side or they're on a different border. They're now my enemy. And it's just that where it's just, it's so, it's so bizarre. And this film allows that to be bizarre. It's like, yeah, that's a weird thing. That's like a weird tradition humans do and the wars that we fight. And this, this war element, this violence of it is just especially potent in this film, especially with how violent this, these two characters' actions end up being. And McDonough does a wonderful job of showcasing the absurdist extremes of conflict but at its core, the Banshees of Inisherin's greatest storytelling strength is its ex- exploration of Agent Gleeson being a older character uh, than uh, Farrell's character. This film is just kind of at its best when it's just these two characters sitting at a table, drinking and discussing life and its meaningness and the mundanity of life. And in doing so, it allows us to understand who these characters are, the life that they lived before we. Uh, came into the picture, and it allows us to see that these characters have lived lives off-screen, and often these stories uh, that are lived in, they feel they feel f- very true to these people, and they're funny yet they're tragic in their own sense, and we get the same story out of Farrell's mouth. Uh, let me let me rephrase that. The we get these stories that the true tell, and one story that can be told by Gleason and feel so pessimistic and can feel so optimistic out of Farrell's mouth. And we just get to, again, see that dichotomy between the two, the hopeful versus the cynic. And in doing so, we understand how these two characters see the world. This is the theatrical elements of McDonough's uh, screenplay writing. The fact that like, this guy was somebody who worked on live stage. like You can really feel those elements present in these sections of the film where you're just like, oh yeah, this is two characters discussing life. And in doing so they do it so interestingly and we learn about it and it feels so dynamic despite it just being two guys sitting at a table drinking beer. And I already teased how I thought Colin Farrell was gonna be a pretty clear front runner for the award. That's also because he's just magnificent in this film. It might be his best performances he's ever given. And that's in a year where I've liked three performances I've seen from him. I thought he was good in 13 Hours. I thought he was great as the Penguin. I still need to see after Yang. And I thought he was absolutely wonderful in the Banshees of Innesheer. And it's a tough performance to pull off. This is like, this adds another notch to his already loaded resume of 2022. Four very different characters. I would probably say this is the most, not optimistic, because that would probably be more 13 Lives. Uh, This is the most fun Farrell gets to have in some ways where it's just this character is such a high wire act balance. It's the sincerity of it. It's this character is kind of just described as dumb in this film and Farrell does that very well. And it's this character lacks cynicism, which is kind of the wonderful thing about this. Like we're fully on board for this character who is just ultimately a guy who just wants to exist and drink beer with his buddies. And it's funny, it's heartbreaking. And it's just a very straightforward premise. And the fact that Farrell makes something dynamic out of somebody who's just so almost in terms just uninteresting, like this guy is just straight up is who he says he is. He is just a guy who lives on an island with his sister and just wants to drink beer with his buddies at the bar. Uh, And in doing so, Farrell is able to create a character that we fully understand despite his lack of a backstory. And Listen, I I think we'll see him rewarded for this performance. I think at the very least we'll see him nominated. Uh, It kind of feels like Brendan uh, Fraser is unstoppable at this point, but I think these two are going to be on the awards path together. And you might see you'll you'll definitely see Farrell get some acclaim for this performance. This is an undeniable performance. Alongside with him is of course Brendan Gleeson, who is uh, who plays Coleman in this film. They share a terrific on-screen chemistry. I will say. Gleason being campaigning for a best supporting actor seems unfair. He is the lead of this film along with Colin Farrow. These are very much co-lead performances. Uh, So while there is some little bit of like fraud in the categories, very good. Like he's very good in this film and it's definitely the medius role in the film. Like there's so much layer to this character and you just feel the pain and the intrigue and turmoil that this character feels and Gleason delivers it in spades so much of it is just nuance of this performance and it is displayed through the facial expressions he is able to offer the movements and the just the penetrating stares this character just is silent for a lot of the film and it feels very powerful like you're just kind of you get lost in this guy's eyes and you see the pain that this character is just like it it's in him and it feels so sad and vulnerable it's really uncomfortable at moments and I, I think he's wonderful. I'd actually probably put him as the most likely to win the best supporting actor role. I think there's going to be... I think it's actually funny because it's going to be Brendan Fraser, A24, going up against uh, Banshees and Shearing. And I think that's probably how the best supporting actor is going to uh, shake out. I think it's going to be Brendan Gleason versus A24's Kiwong Kwon uh, for Everything Everywhere. So that's kind of my prediction right now. Rounding up the cast is Kerry Condon and Barry Keegan. Keegan is wonderful in this movie. This is the true supporting performance in this film. And he's the comedic foil for the film. Like he definitely delivers the biggest laugh lines of the film. And this is really where a lot of the humor comes in. He delivers like just straight up one of the funniest performances of the year. Uh, while Condon is the exact opposite. She's very much the heart and soul of this movie. And the Chu just works so well. And it's just the gravitas that she brings in contrast with the stupidity of Keegan's like drunken idiot character. They work so well in tangent in supporting the Feral and Gleason. They're both wonderful. Carrie Condon is a lock to get nominated. I wish Barry Keoghan would. I think with Brendan Gleeson being in this category, he won't. But it's sad because this is a truly great supporting comedic performance. And his, his stuff's incredible. Every time he is on screen, he is so captivating. And the audience just loves this guy. He really just gets it. What I will say about Banshees of Inner Sharing, because I just have been praising it, I'm not going to say that this film is perfect. I There is something about this film that I struggle with, and I still struggle to uh, after seeing it like three weeks ago. And I don't want to go into detail, so I'm not going to. But without going into details, I want to discuss the third act of the ending of this film. And I don't know if it fully worked for me. The film becomes a lot more aggressive towards the last 30 minutes of it. And it becomes very cinematic and very compelling. But it also is very much dour. And there's a certain moment in the film involving livestock. And when this scene happens, I literally felt the audience like, kind of pull away and pull back from this film. And it's, I think, the point of this film where a lot of audiences might fall off for this film. And it's very thematically challenging. And I I don't know if it fully worked for myself. I found it to be thematically challenging. And I liked how it challenged me. I also found it a little frustrating. I think that is supposed to be the idea. I think that is intentional. I think that is really supposed to just kind of the stupidity of what this whole argument is. So, you're kind of left just like frustrated by it. But it's an ending that I think is going to create reaction. It's going to create a lot of hot takes and it's going to be the real division point of this movie. And it makes me want to see the film again. I want to see this film knowing what I know about the ending and if it plays better or worse for me. I'd Like I said, when I walked out of the theater, it didn't sit right for me. I'm still mewling over it. And I've heard a lot of podcasts. I listened to the big picture talk about it. I listened to IndieWire do their reviews on it. It's really provocative in, like, in a pretty wonderful way, a way that most films today just aren't. Like This film does not give you an easy out for the ending. But ultimately, like I said, I don't know if it worked for me. And I think this is a film that time will tell. And I think the best thing about Banshees of Inisherin this is a film that I will be watching. This is a lot of just like provocative filmmaking it's also just straight up like a fun movie to watch like yes as dark and as cynical and as uh dour as this film can be it's also crazy funny it's a really easy watch it's not a particularly long movie i think this film is pretty well damn spectacular in this uh Always Performances, writing, direction, cinematography, technical, lighting, just everything is pretty wonderful. The music in this film is very good. The scenery, God, I want to live in Ireland after watching this film. The sweaters that they wear, oh my God, Colin Farrell has some sexy turtlenecks in this film. But anyway, I'm a huge fan of Banshees of Innis I'm going to give it, what do I want to give Banshees of Innis This is the challenge. I'm going to give it the four out of four stars. I think just even with the criticisms or critiques that I had about the ending, or even some of the confusion I had about it, it's still very well done. And it's still so worth the watch. And I do prefer that it was challenging and never let me out. Because I think that is ultimately more rewarding than a film that just leaves me like, okay, that's how the film should have ended. So ultimately, Banshee is a finisher. And I feel even more confident after saying that. It's a four out of four star movie. Check this movie out. I think this film is going to be a huge crowd pleasure for the people to see it. And I I think this is probably McDonough's easiest film to get on board with, even despite how dark it is, because the comedy is so, at times, broad, especially with Barry Keoghan and Colin Farrell, especially in that first hour. This film is laugh-out-loud funny multiple times. Check it out. Banshees of Inishirin is great. That is my show today. Thank you all for listening. This has been a long episode. I did so many reviews. I, I kind of hinted at some of the ones that I think... Uh, for retrospect. But I will say, I'm continuing the series. I'm going to be doing Best Supporting Actress Power Rankings later this week. I got a review for Disenchanted. I'll have a review for The Fableman's, Glass Onion, all coming out soon. So, thank you all for watching this video. If you like this video, make sure to like and subscribe to The Beneverse. Help me get to 200 uh, subscribers before the end of this year. Anyway, my name is Ben Friedman. Happy holidays. Hope you all have a great Thanksgiving. Take care. Bye-bye.